Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East political science podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is Anne-Marie Wainscott uh, from Miami University in Ohio, uh, and the author of a new book, Bureaucratizing Islam, Morocco and the War on Terror, which was just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about the book? What were, what were you trying to achieve with the book? And what do you think the major contributions to our understanding of Moroccan Islam are? Well, the major uh, impetus for the book was my concern that scholars have not looked at how the war on terror is shaping the opportunities for Middle Eastern states. Uh, and what I wanted to look at in particular was how Morocco could use this excuse of the need to protect its citizens from religious extremism to take stronger control of the religious field uh, or of public discourse around religion and jihadism. Um, and so I think the major con contribution of the book is starting that conversation, um, examining this in the case of Morocco. I make some comparisons to other uh, cases throughout, but really this is a book that's really focused heavily on the Moroccan case, and I'm hoping long-term to be able to move to um, a more cross-national examination of the ways in which the war on terrorists facilitated the growth of religious bureaucracies across the Middle East. Um, at the same time, I'm really concerned personally about this increased regulation of religion in Muslim societies and the ways in which it could actually backfire and achieve the opposite ends because the religious doctrines that are being embraced by Middle Eastern states are like relatively boring. And so if your target audience is a young demographic and if the groups you're competing against about religious discourse are extremely sophisticated in their use of media and um, are other ways you know, using other tactics that distract from mm -hmm. the um, religious messaging, I think that they're tough competitors. And so I'm a little bit concerned with what I would call like the banalization of Islam as a result of this war on terror dynamic. So let's, let's talk about uh, Morocco itself to start off with. So what exactly did Morocco do in terms of using the war on terror to reshape this it, its approach to Islam? What's really interesting about the Moroccan case is that it learns. And so you can see these real shifts in its policy. Original response to the Casablanca bombings of 2003, that's Morocco's first domestic terrorist attack, uh, was standard Middle Eastern authoritarian, if you have a beard, we put you in prison, right? Uh, but then within a year, they had realized the need for a more sophisticated approach. And so in 2004, the following year, they initiated what they called um, a uh, reform to the religious field, the Hakaldini. They actually used the word field like as in like plowing a field in agriculture. Huh. So it's a really interesting framing of the way in which they view uh, the religious landscape in the country. And so they moved away from this coercive approach where anyone they didn't like what they said, they shut down their voices to trying to co-opt religious elites into a really sophisticated incentive structure that's built on a few different dynamics. One, uh, a very clear and uh, extensive delineation of what Moroccan Islam is that we can summarize quickly as Sunni, Maliki, Ashari, Sufi, and Warsh, but that in its actual implementation in the country is really sophisticated and laid out mm -hmm. in great detail. The second aspect, in addition to this official Islam, is a dramatic expansion of the Ministry of Endowments and Islamic Affairs, which obviously creates a lot of employment opportunities for religious elites. Um, and so that 
provides an incentive for people to embrace this uh, mm -hmm. Moroccan Islam. And then third, the state has very sophisticatedly moved to take control of institutions of higher Islamic learning that grant the credentials necessary to get employment in that bureaucracy. So we kind of have this sophisticated um, system by which if you want to be a religious leader in Morocco, there are very few positions of religious leadership that are not within the Moroccan religious bureaucracy. And so really, in the book, like the state becomes like the central player here. And then mm -hmm. so, hence the title of the book, mm -hmm. of bureaucratizing. Mm -hmm. And so that has all kinds of effects on <laughs> how people approach religious education and practice. Yeah, the way I try to uh, structure the book is in two parts. The first, start, the first part is reshaping Islam. How is the state trying to reshape Islam? But then the second part is more focused on these unintended dynamics. How is the state's efforts to reshape Islam reshaping the state or having dramatic impacts on sectors within the state that you wouldn't anticipate to be impacted by religious policy? So I look at like foreign policy, gender policy, education policy, higher education policy. So the, there are all these unintended effects that um, are reshaping the nature of the Moroccan state. And I wonder, you know, as we see this bureaucratic Islam dynamic at the national level across Middle East, North Africa, and beyond in other Muslim states as well, I wonder, um, I wonder what the impact is on the nature of the state itself. And so tell us how this gets going. So after 2004, you said mm -hmm. that they begin this kind of bureaucratization process. From the beginning, and... it was a very robust policy. I mean, it wasn't one of these slow rollout type right. initiatives. This is like... Uh, a dramatic, sustained, integrated, multi-dimensional strategy that sought to flood the religious. Uh, so they create landscape. a lot, create a lot of jobs. They require new yeah. licenses. Extensive, they... yeah, extensive expansion of the Ministry of Endowments and Islamic Affairs. I have the. Um, Statistics, it's something like an 1,898% increase over the first 15 years after the cost of foreign economics. We're talking about a massive expansion. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry, what was what was the question? How do they go about? Yeah, so, yeah. so, 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 so they, you know, they have this massive expansion of jobs and they change the licensing. And so what does that mean in terms of how these people go about like practicing their, their jobs as Islamic leaders or religious leaders? Well, first of all, we just see an increasing number of people who are going into this field, right? It becomes an attractive it's, it's way an to attractive, get a job. It's an attractive and, you know, people across the Middle East and North Africa are looking for jobs in the bureaucracy, right? This is a way in which you can have like a dependable paycheck. It's very hard to get fired once you get your original job. Um, there's good mm -hmm. pension policies and, and uh, impacts on your job are going to affect other bureaucrats. And so you have this kind of like unionization mm -hmm. effect where your job is just safer than others in the private sector. So in general, there's an interest in Morocco and beyond in getting a job within the bureaucracy. Um, second, there's a dramatic expansion in the number of these positions. Third, the state created all sorts of incentives at the level of higher Islamic education to encourage students to pursue these degrees and then um, to allow mm -hmm. them to get jobs in the bureaucracy. So it's all sorts of little things like entrance exams in the um, departments of Islamic studies at Moroccan universities were easier mm -hmm. than in other subjects. You didn't have to have um, a baccalaureate in a relevant discipline in order to get into a master's degree, right? You could come with an engineering bachelor's degree and do a master's mm -hmm. in Islamic studies. So they allowed people to cross over from one sector to another. 
I have hilarious quotes from interviews in which people talked about like dramatically failing examinations in Islamic studies and still getting passed. So like in one one of the best anecdotes was a friend of mine was in an oral exam with a Islamic studies professor and she was expected to recite a particular text and so he put all these different like texts that were began on little sheets of paper into a cup and then he drew one out and he read the opening and then she was expected to continue and she couldn't do it. She didn't know the text and he said if you promise me that you'll learn this section of scripture, I will pass you. Because they're she, just so desperate to yeah, stop the bureaucracy. Said, oh, I, she said, I'm really going to learn this. I fully commit. Of course, she didn't. She was, you know, not interested in that. Um, but it's such a great uh, anecdote to capture the many ways in which people are getting moved through this mm-hmm. system. And so, obviously, there's a quality control element there. Um, and so presumably the idea is that by expanding this bureaucracy and like licensing and shaping this cadre of instructors, that somehow this will you know kind of create a more moderate Islam and make it more difficult for extremists to recruit. Um, so that's the logic. That's the logic, but the actual like implementation is much less focused on the religious dynamics and much more focused on other subjects. So for example, there's a preference for people with Western languages, English, French, or other, um, European languages that can be used to like describe Moroccan religious policy to an external o- audience. There's a real focus on people's use of and knowledge of website creation, social hmm. media, and other tools that are considered like contemporary. So it, it's not just about like how do we train people to become bureaucrats. It's like how do we train people to become bureaucrats that will be effective in the contemporary like global public discourse on what Islam hmm. is and how can we position people to be really effective. Um, at countering extremist messages online. So in there's this one program that's really well known um, because of Morocco's awesome PR initiatives uh, where Morocco trains foreign imams in its domestic religious mm-hmm. bureaucracy. And this is a dynamic we might want to touch on before the end of the podcast that in addition to building this really impressive domestic religious bureaucracy, Morocco has realized that it can use those same institutions to police the religious spheres of foreign countries, especially foreign countries that have secular um, constitutions. And so they feel a lot of discomfort in regulating their own religious field. They outsource some of that management hmm. to Morocco. But in this one this case... This has become part of Moroccan soft power yeah, then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but returning to this one element, so Morocco started this imam training program first for its own imams, and the, the original expansion of it to foreign imams was it invited 500 Malian imams after the events of 2012 to help with their, to help mm-hmm. establish Moroccan, uh, Malian spiritual security. And one of the major aspects of that has been, how do we train uh, Malian imams to use computers? And if you watch the news mm. coverage of this, it's hysterical. You know, it's like, this is the escape button. I mean, they're really starting... Right. At like a low level of computer literacy, it's like how effective can people really be um, online if they don't have an established level level of computer literacy? But they're trying already. to take this template mm-hmm. and export it into into the into other, gen- other countries. So, in terms of like the actual content of this, you you, you talked about it a few minutes ago as like the banalization. <laughs> Of, of of religion. It's not really fair. It could be exciting, but the way in which I see the Moroccan state going about it is, is um, really safe, although it's changing over time. So the original post-2004 Moroccan religious policy was to emphasize the country's Sunni identity. This is because Morocco mm-hmm. sees some, uh, not influence, but 
Morocco was uncomfortable with the level of Iranian proselytizing in the kingdom. That's why eventually, um, one of the reasons why Morocco eventually kicked out the Iranian ambassador and they had like a spat for a few years. So the emphasis on Sunnism is just to basically remind Moroccans that they shouldn't be um, open to the proselytizing of the Iranians. But then the other three dynamics, Maliki, Maliki Legal School, Ashari Creed, and the promotion of Sufism, these were all meant to set Moroccan religious policy up as in contrast to or in competition with Salafism, right? So Salafism doesn't expect, doesn't accept the four legal schools, mm -hmm. La Madhabiya. So the Maliki, um, the embrace of the Maliki school puts it, the Moroccan religious policy in competition with Salafism. The Ashari creed embraces the use of human reason in ways that Salafis think is unnecessary in interpreting, interpreting religious scripture. And then uh, the promotion of Sufism, obviously, Salafis yeah. tend to be hostile to Sufis, though not always. Um, so combined, this policy was like an effective way for Morocco to really say like what we are mm -hmm. is different than um, what Salafis are and to try and discourage um, the proselytizing of Salafism in the country. However, over time, what Morocco has done, and I get into this a little bit in the presentation later, is... Um, Morocco has realized that like Sufism isn't a very like effective counterweight to Salafism. Um, the people who are going to be attracted to Salafism are not going to find the arguments of Sufism convincing. It's what you've seen is this move towards Salafi accommodation in the last few years. And there's this great quote from Ahmed Taufik. Recently, the Ministry of Endowments and Islamic Affairs hosted a conference on Salafism, and Taufik opens it by saying, Moroccans have always been... Salafis and all Moroccans today are Salafis really trying to depoliticize and like I said earlier banalize like make this word less interesting and less exciting like Salafism isn't anything new or unique we've always been Salafis and you don't need to be attracted to that kind of discourse so I see this movement away from a very rigid um, religious policy toward an effort to absorb other ideologies that the Moroccan state sees as threatening and then to um find a way to position the Moroccan monarchy as in some way superior. Now, there's a fascinating passage in the book about how the pronunciation of the recitation <laughs> yeah. of the Quran becomes like a key pillar yeah, of this, yeah. um, which I, I hadn't really heard about this before. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How does that fit into sure. this model? Yeah, so the fifth model? emerging plank, so there's uh, Moroccan Islam is Sunni, Maliki, Ashari, and Sufi, and there's this fifth emerging plank, which is, um, Moroccan Islam is recited with the Warsh reading of the Quran. Warsh is like a nickname that was given to the original reciter. I think it means like pale guy or white guy. <laughs> you know, so, uh, it's just named after the original reciter. And um, what it is, is so there are 14 different ways that you can recite Quran. And um, it's evident to the listener the style in which the Quran is being recited, because there are different rules. And in the Warsh reading, which is the reading embraced by the Moroccan state, a lot of the rules deal with the vowels at the end of passages that connect verses. And so it, it makes it very easy to tell when you're listening to someone if they're reading in the Warsh. It also means that Quranic uh, must have for the the printings of the Quran have to be printed in a particular way with the right vowing in order to facilitate the recitation. So when I originally noticed this constant invoking of the Warsh reading of the Quran in Moroccan religious documents, I was like, why are they doing this? They, they've taken Moroccan religious policy too far. <laughs> like, this is too specific. Nobody cares. Like, why are they doing this? But over time, I have come to respect this as a really crucial aspect of Moroccan religious policy because what it does, if you train citizens to understand how to 
um, listen to the Quran, they're going to be able to identify religious scholars from other traditions. And this is particularly important in the contemporary period where you have satellite scholars, um, that's kind of like a derogatory name, but uh, religious scholars who are using YouTube or satellite TV or even radio in some places to spread ideas about religion that the Moroccan state does not accept. And so by training Moroccan citizens to understand and to identify worse readings of the Quran, you're actually providing a filtering device to citizens to understand this is an acceptable religious authority to me, and this is not. So how does this uh, Moroccan approach, broadly speaking, how does it compare to other Arab states? Is it a very similar model, or are there some things that are really distinctive about the Moroccan approach? I've kind of struggled with this comparison because... Originally, I saw the Moroccan approach as really unique because, one, the bureaucracy has expanded exponentially in the period of the War on Terror, 2003 to the present, whereas other countries that have sophisticated religious bureaucracies like Saudi or Iran, their religious bureaucracies predate this period, and so they tend to have a different set of dynamics. However, the longer that I've worked on the subject, the more I've seen states across the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia, but also Jordan, Egypt, move toward the regulation of religion at the state level in a way that I would say, I think bureaucratized Islam is a trend across the region and even outside of the region. Um, I think what it allowed the Moroccan state to do was to rely less on coercion than other states. But I think more and more that difference is starting to break down as more states embrace this policy. And so, so originally I used to see Morocco as really sui generis, but now I'm starting to adjust my opinion and say, okay, I think bureaucratic Islam is a trend across the region. So for example, like when does a state take control of the fatwa, for example, like the Saudis, 2010, um, the Jordanians are the best comparison because they took control of the fatwa almost immediately after the Amman bombings, which is similar to the Moroccans took control of the fatwa in 2000, I think even in 2004, the year after the Casablanca bombings. So you see this move to increase state regulation of religion in the name of counter terrorism across the region, not just in Morocco. Now, one of the questions that kind of runs through uh, the book, I think, is this question of the how, how you think about the effect of the war on terror. In other words, mm-hmm. is this like the, the Casablanca bombings happen and then the Moroccan state searches for a solution to that problem? Mm-hmm. Or as it appears in parts of the book, was it more opportunistic? This is something they wanted to do anyway, and uh, the the war on terror gave them the excuse to do what they wanted to do. I mean, how do you think that that plays out? That's a good question of whether they wanted to do this anyways, and I don't I don't know whether if the 2003 Casablanca bombings hadn't happened, I don't know if this is the direction that the monarchy would have taken. The way I tend to think of it as, the way I tend to think of it is that the regulation of religion, it achieves two goals. One, it allows the state to present itself as being really proactive in the fight against jihadism. And two, it allows the state to discourage opposition from religious elites. So I I guess I would say that I think the Casablanca bombings were necessary. There needed to be a reason. Because even if you look at the 1990s in Morocco, there was this discourse about we are not Algeria. Like, what's happening in Algeria will never happen to us. There's this sense of Moroccan exceptionalism. And what the cause of, uh, for, those, for those listeners who aren't familiar with the case of Algeria, there was a very, very bloody civil war in the 1990s uh, that, uh, was, that one of the major participants in were jihadis. 
And so the Moroccans have always been keen to separate themselves from Algeria and to say, like, religious extremism is not a problem for us. And so the 2003 Casablanca bombings really initiated a crisis because it's like, well, are there jihadis among us? My personal reading is that Morocco actually just overall has less of a problem with these type of ideologies in other states. But what that allows it to do is to claim that its approach is successful. There's no real way to say, like, is Moroccan regulation of religion preventing religious extremism? There's not really an effective way to measure this, in my opinion. And so, as, it, as a result, the state can just claim success when, mm -hmm. in the absence of terrorist attacks. But my sense is, even if the state hadn't regulated religion to the degree that it does now, I don't believe you would see the level of jihadi activity that you see in other states. Oh, we've been speaking with uh, Anne-Marie Wainscott, uh, author of the new book, uh, Bureaucratizing Islam, uh, Morocco and the War on Terror, uh, just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, thanks for joining us. My pleasure.